It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. It's your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist and civics teacher L. Joy Williams and I'm glad that you made it to class this morning because I want to take a moment to level set us because there's a lot of conversation that I boil down to right now. When is the right time to protest? When is the right time to challenge elected officials? When is the right time to challenge the president? oh, there's an election coming in in a year. We have to be careful because we don't want the other side to win. And I just want to remind those of you who've been in class and to inform those of you who are coming to class here at Sunday Civics for the first time that it is always time. to challenge those who we elect. It is always time to speak up and to protest. It is always time. There is never a time that we don't demand from our government and from those who represent us that they consider and that they take action based upon the will of those they represent. And so for thousands, millions of us, not only here in the United States, but across the world, globally, who are rising up and calling for a ceasefire, for those who are telling the president, we don't want another war, for those who are talking to their congressional members, calling the offices. I've seen news reports about congressional members and their staff were, you know, uh, blindsided by how many people are calling. Great. (laughs) Now, I don't believe that people are blindsided by this. I think that's just a whole other narrative that is being played out in the press. But we have seen examples every time there are conflicts, are threats of war, that people stand up and demand that their voice be heard. So don't let anyone tell you that now is not the time. Now is absolutely the time. Now is the time to tell the president that we don't want to participate. We don't want this to continue. We don't want the lives of innocent people uh, to be lost um, over another war, over this conflict. We don't want to provide weapons of destruction, murder uh, to anybody on any side. Now is the time to say uh, we demand and to use our power and our voice to say that there should be a ceasefire. Now is the time to do that. Now is the time to speak up when it is happening now. And even though we're facing another, I think there's a the countdown, the days countdown for another shutdown and votes have been canceled. And there is commentary and rumors about what the Republicans are putting forth for a vote. The Democrats are putting for the vote. What the president is asking Congress to do, because remember, who has the power of the purse? It is not the president. It is Congress. So while you're making the demands of the president, we also need to make the demands to make sure you're calling your congressional members as well and demanding that they don't, you know, fund this activity and that we protect, you know, the human lives. Um, And now is the time to do that. So don't let anybody convince you and shout you down and say now is not the time. And the same thing, I would say now is the time to raise your voice in talking about a the upcoming election. 
while right, I believe, and I know for a fact that the Biden administration has significant wins, has significant things that this administration has done to right this country for and and to invest in the American people um, and to right the ship. We can also say, yes, you've done this and we want more. <laughs> and the election is a year out. So yes, of course, you can say to the president, continue trying to figure out how to get this student loan thing done. And I know the administration is changing different things and they're trying to figure out, well, you know, this category of people and this category of workers, and they're trying to find within the bounds of the law, um, within the bounds of what the president has the power to do, they're trying to figure that out. But we have to continue to make the environment conducive for the administration and for Congress. Don't let Congress off the hook on this in order to get this done. And like I said on Roland Martin's show this week, right? In order for us to get to a collective win in the next election cycle, we have to educate people along the way. So don't be too hard on the people that's like, I'm not voting now. We got, we got a year to go. We got time <laughs> to convince people. There may be people that, you know, double down in there, I'm not voting. Well, let me tell you. There are millions of other people who stayed home. So if people want to double down and that one individual, those five individuals said they're staying home, there's close to 8 million people that we can still talk to, that we can still convince, that we can still talk about what the wins of this administration has been, that we can still talk about that we need to provide the administration, the Congress necessary. We need to provide, you know, the state legislature. We need to, you know, flip state legislatures. We need governor's mansions we there is still time and there are enough people that we can reach and convince social media is not all of the people that exist in this country and i promise you if we can have the conversations within our family our our friend groups out in our community if we have those conversations and not Focus so much, we do have to pay a little bit of attention to the people who are doubling down and telling people not to vote. But there are millions of other people that we can convince and engage. And so here in the Sunday Civics classroom, we're not going to focus too much on the people who want to double down and tell people not to vote. We're going to double down and we're going to arm people with resources, the information, the talking points, all of those things on how we can engage the thousands, the millions of other people that are still on the table, that are still disengaged, that we can arm them with the information in order for them to engage in this process and to turn this country around. So don't so much focus on what people are tweeting, famous people are saying, you know, why they gonna vote for Trump and not Biden and all that kind of stuff. Focus on the people that are never asked to register, that are never asked to vote, that don't know um, how much power their vote and their engagement and their voice has. That's what we focus on here at Sunday Civics. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about workers and how they are rising up across not only the United States, but globally to demand what is rightfully theirs um, from benefits to higher wages. And I deliberately for last week and, you know, this week and talking to people outside researchers and experts outside of the United States to make the connection that this is happening globally, that a lot of the issues that we are facing, it is not just the U.S., but it is happening globally. And so we have a researcher to talk about uh, the future of work and also of workers' rights and the movements across the world. Uh, of workers rising up to uh, get what's rightfully there. So we'll uh, join in that conversation when we come back here on Sunday Civics. Who is the Tisha? I will let you know. Who is the Tisha? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams. 
And we are diving deep into the heart of the global labor movement, dissecting the concept of work, what it means to sell one's time for a living, and how workers globally are pushing back on employers as they strive for better, fair conditions and rights. There is a movement not only here in the United States, which we've seen with the writer strike, the actor strike, we've seen with Amazon workers, Walmart workers, auto workers, workers across the globe are pushing back against employers and trying to get what is rightfully due to them. And so I read a couple of books about this subject and I thought, why not ask the author of some of those books, at least a partner in one of those books, to come to the front of the class to have this discussion about workers demanding what they are due. So joining us today is Dr. Jamie Woodcock, a London-based researcher and senior lecturer at the University of Essex. His remarkable body of work covers labor unions and the gig economy and provides a unique lens through which we can better understand the changing world of work. Today, we're addressing everything from the impact of the digital age on labor movements to the influence of the gig economy to the critical role played by unions in upholding workers' rights. So let's dive into this conversation so we can educate, activate, and motivate ourselves to be better aware involved and proactive advocates of workers' rights. So Dr. Woodcock, thank you and welcome to the front of the class. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to come and join you today. I, particularly on the gig economy piece, which we're going to get into later, there's some parallels, obviously, to earlier commerce and that I'm saying centuries because just thinking about how work <laughs> was defined, I feel like it was based in a gig economy kind of thing, even though it wasn't called that. But people had a little bit more ownership than they do now. So I want to get into that later. But first, I want to ask you the question we ask every guest, which is to tell us the story of your first civic action. So I'm going to slightly cheat with my answer, if that's okay, uh, because I, I have two. But sure. one of them, I was so young, I don't think I can really claim as my own civic action. But uh, when I was a, a very small child, my, my, my parents would take me on, on demonstrations. And so I think my first one is remembering being taken on a demonstration about uh, about changes that were happening to schooling in Britain uh, under Margaret Thatcher. And this was about the taking away of green milk from schools. And so I have a very strong memory of being a child in a pushchair, being taken out on, on one of these demonstrations. But I, I think the first real one that I can say that I went on rather than being pushed in a pushchair is as a school student. I was a, a school student during the Iraq war um, and we organized a school walkout in in opposition to the war. And this for me was an incredibly formative moment of seeing what you could do as individuals and as a group to try and oppose something as, as horrific as, as the war that was happening. That's related to what I talked about in the beginning as we see millions of people protesting now the escalation of war, not just in Israel versus Hamas, but in Syria, there are wars and conflicts also happening on the African continent. And people are saying that, look, we don't want this. <laughs> we do not, I mean, across the globe, right? Because the status of war right now is sending other people's children to fight a battle that people are not, one, are long conflicts that feel like we can oh, work them in a different way. And it's very interesting to hear people push back on people protesting death and destruction, that that's not the right way to go about it, that you need to do something different. What are we supposed to do if the other people are doing this? And it's like people can and should demonstrate in protest and say, we do not want the mass killing and more war and destruction. We have seen over centuries what that results in. It's just loss of life. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit us globally in any way. And so it's interesting that for a number of people, I've talked to folks who come, came of age, like you mentioned, the Iraq War, certainly our parents who, you know, in Vietnam War and other wars, was just, again, the cycle of protesting against war in general. And so I can imagine a number of people recalling those stories of protesting against that. So I want to move now to what I wanted you to come to the front of class to talk about, and it is the state of workers, really, because a lot of the conversation here in the U.S. about the state of work is about getting people, workers particularly, to come back to work or to 
come into the building and work longer hours and get back to that point where we can exploit. I'm sorry. <laughs> get back to the point where we can exploit you is which is what I hear when I do those headlines. And so would love for you to just set the stage for us on what the status of workers are starting from that framework. Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I have very similar views to what you're saying about the, the push to get people people back to work. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is I consider workers to be people who have to sell their time to somebody else in order to survive. And I think, you know, particularly in the US, there are a lot of discussions around, you know, being working class or being middle class or the differences between these sorts of things. For me, what's important is whether or not you have to go to work, um, you know, whether or not that's, that's how you survive. And I think for the overwhelming majority of us, this is how we, how we make a living, how we have a roof over our heads and, and food in our fridges. And I think there have been lots and lots of inequalities around work, many of which the pandemic has really highlighted. Um, you know, who has a choice over how they work, you know, what they do when they're at work. And I think the current state, I think it's still set by what happened during the pandemic. Uh, with many people being told, you know, they could now suddenly work from home, although they hadn't been allowed to for many years before that. And then many other people having to go out, put themselves at risk. So the rest of us could have our deliveries, you know, have our, our meals delivered or be delivered or be looked after or receive healthcare. And I think this really shone a light on how much of our lives relies on low paid workers with really precarious conditions. And I imagine the situation is similar in the US, but there hasn't really been an accounting for what happened during the pandemic and how we could do things differently with, with how we organize work. Um, so many of those essential workers, you know, they haven't been rewarded for what they did during the pandemic. And many of them are still facing really tough conditions at work. Beginning of what you stated talking about individuals selling their time is uh, resonates a lot with me in thinking about trying to be more in the offensive, particularly here in the U.S., about how we protect not only workers, but also bodily autonomy for individuals in the United States. And I'm talking to folks about, from a constitutional standpoint, people having the right to control their bodies and the fruits of their labor, right? And how a, a simple affirmative constitutional amendment or law that states that protects not only an individual to choose their reproductive future, but also protects workers in terms of them selling their time, as you mentioned, or selling their wares, their products or anything, how it protects them that it's not just, oh, I'm giving you the, the benefit or, or something for you to come work for me. It's like, no, I'm giving you something. I'm giving you my time. I'm giving you my expertise. I'm giving you my to contribute to the overall success of the company. And I don't think we view not only here in the U.S., but I think globally, I don't think we view workers in that way. We view it as ultimately you having the pleasure and the privilege of coming to work for me, not that there is this even exchange of you giving me something of value, i.e. money or product for my time, my creativity, my contribution at all. Where does that, what does that stem from? So I think somebody once choked that we're free to work in two ways, right? We're free to choose whoever we want to work for. You know, it's a voluntary thing that we can do. But we're also most of us freed from any other thing to do and working. So we end up relying on, on work. And I think often that balance between what workers get out of work and what the employers are doing is often we, we think about it in a press or in, yeah. in culture as, you know, a natural thing and a natural way of organizing. And what I like to, you know, when I talk to my students, I talk to them about when you boil all work down. It comes down to the buying and selling of people's time. And we should get a fair bargain over our time when we sell it because it's an incredibly valuable thing. But it's often we think of it the other way around and say, 
you know, people are working from home and they're not doing enough work. You never think about it way around. Like, why do we have to work such long hours? You know, why do we not have protections when we're at work? And I think part of the debate on the future of work is coming back to like, what is the settlement we get out of work? You know, why shouldn't we get, why shouldn't we work less, have more time off? You know, these are all things that can be changed, right? We don't like the thing we have to spend our whole lives doing as a transaction. Like we're going to the shops and buying and selling something. Like, you know, we want to feel good about our work. We want to have a career. We want to do something good in the world. And that I think means that we end up accepting, you know, we end up accepting things we wouldn't otherwise accept, um, like bad conditions or, or lower pay or whatever it might be. And as you mentioned, not only coming out of the pandemic, there is a lot of pushback and a lot of organizing happening amongst workers in different fields. Some who were previous who have been unionized and some who are trying to unionize. Um, can you share a little bit about the recent surge in unionization movements globally and what factors you actually believe are contributing um, to that resurgence? So I think there are a couple of things here. And I think the first thing is, you know, it's workers who produce the world and reproduce the world every day, right? And I think the pandemic really showed that, that we rely on these different kinds of work in order just to live our, our daily lives. And I think for a lot of people, the lack of protections that employers gave back to people during the pandemic showed how one-sided the employment relationship has become, where people weren't given PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, weren't given time off work if they were sick. It showed how little value so many companies have for their workforces. And so I think there are two triggers that come out of this for organizing. I think the first is in existing workplaces, you know, in the healthcare industry, in education, uh, you know, in deliveries and these sorts of things of people realizing that they're not going to be given benefits, but they have to organize if they want to protect their work. And also if we want a better way of working, it has to be on us to, to, to ask for those things and to organize for those things. But I also think there's another trend that started to come out that is particularly workers who've never been in unions before. Maybe people who don't know anyone in the union, younger workers who are entering into the workforce and seeing that actually the prospect of working low paid, precarious, difficult jobs for the rest of their lives is not something that people want. Um, and that things can be different. Um, and I think there are a couple of examples that I think have been really inspiring for people, particularly here in Britain, uh, seeing the organizing at Starbucks, for example, um, or the organizing at Amazon of these kind of new, new, newer workplaces where there haven't been unions and people are collectively starting to figure out what it means to organize that. And I think the labor movement has never moved in kind of small quantitative steps, right? Like one year, another few workers, the next year, it moves in leaps. And I think we're seeing a leap at the moment where lots of people want more control over their lives at work and are starting to do something about it. I'm going to ask this question and part of me is laughing about it, but like, are all employers bad? I mean, who are some good and, uh, I mean, I'm an employer and I think about myself, like, am I, obviously I'm a small shop and so there's not a, like a unionization piece in less than five people, but oh, if you're thinking about those who consider themselves smaller entities and smaller employers the going narrative is always, I can't afford, right, to do certain things. And I wonder if there are resources or if there are uh, checklists or things that people who are either starting a business or are currently in a business and don't think of themselves as the size of an Amazon or a Starbucks of practices that they can implement so that they are on the path to being a quote unquote good employer, that whether they're small, mid-size, and as the company grows or, you know, expands, that it can grow to a point where it is seen, you know, as a company that has good policies and support for their workers. So I think, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, and I think for me, Economic exploitation is not necessarily 
Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a moral question. It's about material interest. And the way I always think about this is when I go to work, my interest is to work hard enough that I don't get sacked, but also have enough time at the end of the day that I can spend time with friends, with family, you know, look after, you know, the rest of my life. Um, you know, so I'm committed to doing the things I need to do, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to work a hundred percent all the time. Whereas my employer wants to get the most out of the time they buy from me, right? Um, you know, they want me to work hard. And so there's always this indeterminacy at work between how hard are you going to work when you're, when you're working there. And so what this means for businesses is it's in the interest to make people work harder. You know, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, it's a bad thing or, or a good thing. There is just a different set of interests. And I think the best employers are ones that recognize that, that the interest of the person who owns the business and the interest of the people who work there can pull apart. And the solution to this is democracy in the workplace. Uh, a good employer is one that genuinely consults people who work with them, listens to the grievances that people have and understands that there might be, you know, there might be points where people disagree and how those disagreements then get dealt with rather than saying, you know, we all share the same interest all the time because in practice it doesn't work. Like but I mean, how does that affect, right? Because I think about certainly American culture and capitalism in general, right? Like the brand of capitalism that we are in now, where it's just preached to us from an early age. You go, you work until you're dead tired. <laughs> and also the gaslighting that comes from certain employers of we're a family, we're a team. You should do this because you're part of this family. You should work late. You should work on that kind of thing. But it's also reciprocated in terms of family, in terms of resources from the company, time off, as you mentioned, and things of that nature. And so boss culture and the exploitative capitalism that we are now is to extract as much and pay little from in terms of workers so that you can be the six-figure CEO. You can be the, right? Like, so that is the measure of success from business week and the top 40 under 40, right? Like we've built this culture that the, the dollars matter and not necessarily building a healthy company that is successful for you as the owner and the CEO and others, but also for your employees. So how, because I think about that in terms of the push for unionization and others in thinking about whether it's the actor strike or the writer strike or what have you, like they are significant contributors to the work product, but the significant focus is on making more money. And I think, you know, I think one of the big changes from the 1970s onwards <clears throat> is a promotion of what we might call neoliberalism, a kind of sense that the market is the best way of deciding, you know, how we deal with healthcare or education or housing. And the competition is a kind of, uh, is a, a natural good. The competition leads to the best things happening. Now, I think one of the, one of the problems with this is everywhere we look, we see evidence that points the other way. The American healthcare system for an, as an example, you know, somebody from Britain, where we have a national health service that we're trying to stop being marketized. These elements of competition don't lead to good health outcomes for, for the majority of people. And the problem is that these ideas have got very deeply embedded into culture, that the sense that success is you having more than somebody else, uh, or that success is measured in, in monetary terms means that, you know, it's difficult to think of, of other alternatives to this, of, of how things could look differently. And I think one of the things that excites me so much about the wave of unionization that's happening at the moment is there are lots of young people coming together with people they work with saying together, we can have a better experience at work. Not I'm going to get promoted above you and then I'll get to tell you what to do and I'll get paid more, but a sense that some of that individualism and competition is breaking down. And, you know, I also think one of the reasons why this breaks down, and I know less about the U S context, but in Britain, 
the key decider of whether or not you become a rich person is the wealth of your parents. You know, this is the key decider. It's not the level of your education. It's not how hard you work. Uh, it's not whether you own property. It's how much wealth your parents have. And that's not something that you can change once you're born. So it doesn't matter how hard you work. You're never going to be part of that elite unless a very small number of people, of course, manage to be successful and so on. But the key reason is, is family wealth. And I think a lot of people look at that and say, well, I can't compete on my own. And actually, I don't want to be richer than my friends. You know, that's not success for me. And so those moments of collective, collective organizing and collective ways of lifting everybody up, I think are, are really exciting because the rest of society tells you, you can't do that. The individual routes to success are the only way. And I think the more, the more examples we have of that, the more people will see it's something they can do together with other people. Yeah. I want to go now to what I said in the beginning about the gig economy. How do you see the role of digital platforms and the gig economy in general? How, how does that influence the labor movement? And first, I want you to start by, I mean, people, if you say gig economy, they're thinking Uber and Instacart and things like that that are tied to apps. So can you just explain what the gig economy is in modern time frame? Because like I said, if we, we, we started commerce as a gig economy from, from a historical perspective, but from the modern perspective. Yeah, so I, I, I'll say two things on this. The, the first is the gig economy is a very broad category. And what it's trying to talk about are unstable and short-term working relationships. So this idea that work is like a gig that you would go and play as a musician and be offered to play once and then you go and play somewhere else. It's this sense of very short-term relationship. And it's worth saying that the start of work was with these sorts of relationships. You know, there, were, there never used to be employment contracts. There never used to be long-term work relationships. You know, if I look out of the window through the rain in London to, to East London where I live, this was a neighborhood of docks and dock workers didn't have employment contracts. They you know, went out in the morning and waited to see whether or not they would be picked to unload ships. You know, this was a one-off relationship that happened each time. This is true of many, many other kinds of work, short-term relationships. And over time, people organized together. They got better conditions. They got more stable relationships. You know, docks in Britain are now a very well-unionized industry with very stable contracts. And I think what's happened with this kind of new discussion of the gig economy is that platforms, digital platforms, um, so things like Uber that bring together drivers and customers and allow for these short-term relationships to be formed, have sort of become an attempt to change working relationships again. So to offer these short-term ways of work. And I think this isn't an entirely clear-cut relationship because I think a lot of people feel stifled by existing employment relationships at the moment. All the gig economy workers that I've interviewed over the last 10 years, like lots of people say, I want flexibility in my work. I want to be able to fit work around my life. You know, I have childcare responsibilities or I'm studying in the evening or, or you know, whatever other reason it might be, people want work to fit around them rather than having them fit around work. Now, in some ways you can see that as being how wonderful that the gig economy offers this flexibility. But you could also say, how sad is it that existing work isn't offering those things to people? That exist, there's a problem with existing work where you can't have time off when you want and so on. But on the other side, when people work on these platforms, they often find that the flexibility isn't flexibility for them. It's flexibility for the company. You know, the company doesn't have to take on the responsibilities of paying them long-term, paying their pensions or sick pay. And so for a lot of people, it's ended up deteriorating working conditions. Um, and I think the pandemic really highlighted this, right? If you were a driver and you got COVID, it just didn't work. You still had to pay your, your car fees, your car insurance, your data, you know, data package on your mobile phone and so on. And I think really like in this way, the gig economy showed some of the big problems with work at the moment that, you know, if you don't take responsibility as an employer. It's people's lives that, that end up being affected by that. Hmm. 
I want how does things like in the U.S. where your access to health insurance right is tied to employment, as you mentioned, pension and other things, they're tied to you being with a particular employer. There are a number of studies or surveys where they've asked people, would you stay at your job if your health insurance or your pension wasn't tied to this? And people, a large percentage of people say no, right? That they're this job or working this hours because this is where I have health insurance for my family. This is contributing the largest to my pension and I have responsibilities afterwards. And I wonder how much that stifles economic growth in general, because where else would those folks be? What else could they create? What other kinds of work or things would they be had they not had to be tied to this employer because of that? And I wonder how, you know, having those basic things like healthcare, pension, sick pay, those things tied to employment, in particular to employers, impacts our 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 work. So I think this is a difficult this is a difficult issue in a number of ways. That I believe that everybody should have access to healthcare regardless of whether they're working or not. And that's of course coming from a country where where there is a, a health system that's not tied to to the employer. I also think pensions I think of pensions as deferred wages. So a pension is something that should be paid by your employer because they get the time when you're able to work. And this is the money to allow you to have a restful retirement after you've worked for all of your life. We don't often, you know, sometimes we don't think about it in that way. And I think particularly in the US system with 401ks and paying in, and then it's, you know, you have to get a good return on it in the market and so on. We start to forget that really this should be a social payment to people who work their whole lives to allow them to have a retirement. And that's a kind of different way of thinking about about these benefits, so to give you an example, you know, my employer pays in double what I paid to my pension scheme and has a requirement that there is a defined benefit in the pension at the end, regardless of how the market goes, because there's a sense that higher education workers who will pay into the pension should be able to look after the retired members at the end of it. Now, I think there is a huge pressure that when healthcare and pensions are tied to your job, it stops you being able to take the risk of trying to do something else. And I imagine there are millions of American workers who are afraid of leaving their job because of those benefits, you know, particularly if the healthcare applies to family and so on as well. You know, this is a thing that ties people to the employer. But my worry also slightly is that in the gig economy, you know, with these platform companies, a lot of them look at the cost of labor and say, this is too expensive. You know, we have to pay taxes on top of what we pay to people. We have to pay for their healthcare, their sick pay, their pensions, their holidays, you know, all of these things. Wouldn't it be good to get rid of those costs uh, and instead have them paid by somebody else? And so in Britain, if you work for one of these companies, it means the company doesn't pay the same employment taxes that they would pay to any other worker. And this is really a, you know, 20 to 30% saving on the wage bill. So. It's a powerful incentive for these companies not to, to pay for these things. And a lot of people involved in these companies, we have a company called Deliveroo. It's a bit like Uber Eats. Well, it's basically the same sort of thing, good delivery. And there are lots of close relationships with the major uh, dominant political party here in Britain, uh, the Conservative Party, uh, which is a, a right-wing political party in which they say work has changed. Look at Deliveroo, look at Uber and these sorts of companies, social benefits should change too. And I worry a bit that these companies become a wedge to take away the benefits that previous generations won for us, that we should have a right to time off. We should have a right to holidays, to, to sick pay and so on. And so taking that away from the company means who has to pay for it? Well, it's inevitably low paid workers who are already struggling to pay for those things. And I think companies have a responsibility to pay these benefits and pay taxes, uh, because that's how we try and build a society that looks after people, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of that, how in the responses that corporations, as you mentioned, and, and governments are given to these unionization efforts or these pushback from workers, what policies or practices do you think would better support workers 
um, and to ensure that it's a fair working environment, but also that it's equitable, right? That employers aren't being overburdened with taxes and regulations and things, that they are paying their fair share while also workers getting their fair share in wages and also benefits. Yeah, so I, I think that one of the ways to ensure this is about creating a regulatory environment in which workers can collectively organize and then can make, can make demands on employers and have a way to figure out whether or not those demands get, get met or not. So give an example in Britain, anybody can join a trade union. You're in the, the army or the, or, or the police, but you know, workers can join trade unions. They then have a legal right to bargaining and there are procedures through which you can then call a strike or you can have a protest. And at the moment, the government is really trying to make it harder and harder for people to organize collectively to more restrictions on when you can strike or how you can strike. And I think this is a problem. And, you know, in the U S the laws are even more restrictive in, in lots of ways, because if you don't provide a channel through which those that bargain over how much you're selling your time for, you know, if you don't provide a way for that bargain to be negotiated, you end up with really unfair outcomes. And I think the difficult thing about this is, you know, over the past 50 years, the share of the economy, the share of profit go to workers has declined and declined and declined. You know, we have a cost of living crisis here in Britain. I'm sure there are similar things happening in the US in which it's getting harder and harder for people to, to meet their basic needs. Uh, and I think, you know, there's really only one solution to that, which is ensuring that people can demand more and demand better, uh, because otherwise we're going to end up in more and more unequal situations. And that inequality doesn't just harm those at the bottom, it harms everybody. Um, it makes society more isolated, more, more unhappy and more, you know, more difficult place for people to live. But then those at the bottom have to shoulder that burden, you know, much, much more, right? How is the digital age that we're in, how is that impacting uh, labor movements in, in general, right? Because we have ways in which people can communicate differently. So are unions adapting to that? How is organizing in general adapting to that standpoint? And how is our awareness of what is happening? So I would say that lots of workers are changing how they organize. So if you're organizing at work today in Britain, you will inevitably be organizing on WhatsApp to some degree. You'll be in WhatsApp groups, you'll be sending WhatsApp messages. Communication is cheaper and easier than it's ever been before. It's very easy to share information. Some unions are taking a bit longer to catch up. Um, you know, unions are often can take some time to adapt to new technologies. But in the workplace, people are much, much more used to communicating regularly and communicating a lot more detail. I think one of the exciting things about the growth of digital technology is it also makes it much easier for people to form connections from their workplace to other places. You can guarantee that Starbucks workers in Britain are able to hear about what's happening in Starbucks in the US. Uh, you know, they can go on social media, they can see about union efforts, they can see if a protest is happening. But I also think more importantly, they can then reach out to the people involved. And so we hear plenty of stories of people who, you know, reached out on Twitter to somebody, ended up having a Zoom call, shared experiences. These are things that a hundred years ago would have been unimaginable, right? That you could connect with workers on the other side of the world and share experiences. And for us in, in universities, you know, this is where I work, you know, there are now like lots of international connections that are formed because you can just send somebody a Zoom link and then have a chat about what's happening in one place and learn those stories and examples. So I think, you know, technology on its own doesn't change things, right? How we use that technology, how it becomes integrated into things. But I think for those who are interested in, in change, in progressive change, these tools can facilitate whole new ways of doing things, right? I can join your radio show from, from Britain and we can, we can have these conversations in a way we wouldn't have been able to before, right? Yeah, absolutely. What do you 
envision the future of work and unionization, labor movements in general over the next decade? Like, what are something you're like fearful of, but that you have, I guess, some things that you are hopeful about in this work, considering your career of, of research on the topic? So I'll say two things on this. I think the first is the future of work has become this very kind of like popular topic to talk about in the media, right? You know, what is the future of work? What will it be? What will AI do to work? What will digital platforms do? And I think in some ways it's really good that we're talking about the future because in the future things can be different. But the future of work is this kind of strange like horizon point, right? Like at the, we'll reach the future of work and this will have happened. And I think what it could miss is how we get to that future is based on the choices we make right now. And I think every time something positive happens, you know, somebody organizes at work and they change things, this points us a little bit closer to a better future of work. But every time there's a restructuring and a whole lot of people are sacked or new technology removes a load of jobs or, you know, whatever it might be, we take one step towards a more negative dystopia of, of work. And I think that's one of the things we need to focus on is what are we doing and how are we building that future of work? Like, are we making something that's going to be more equitable, that's going to be fairer, that's going to be more, um, you know, engaging, it's going to do something about the climate crisis. You know, all of these issues are things we can do something about right now. But the thing that I'm really positive about is I keep having really inspiring discussions with people who are new to the labor movement. We've never done organizing before and have had a taste of what collective action can do for themselves, for people they work with, for their communities. And it reminds me of a, like a simple truth that I've tried to hold on to since that first civic moment I told you about, not the one in the pushchair, but the one at school is that ordinary people genuinely have the power to change the world. And you see glimpses of that every time there's a strike or a protest or a sit-in or whatever it might be. This is a glimpse of how the world could be different. And at the moment, things are pretty bleak, right? There's a lot of bleak news. There's a lot of scary things happening in the world, but there are also these kind of moments of this could, things could be different. And that, you know, I find incredibly inspirational. Dr. Wilcock, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us um, here on Sunday Civics and having this conversation, I think was really insightful. Um, one, it's encouraging that it's not just in the United States, it's across the world where uh, people are pushing back and coming together um, to demand better for themselves and for, like you mentioned, their colleagues and also for future workers, right? To make sure that there are benefit equity in the benefits and wages that people are receiving for their time and for their creativity and for their ingenuity because people don't create CEO doesn't create widgets on their own or sell them on their own. There are a lot of things that go into creating that. And the civic action, the civic power is making sure that governments are not used to stifle that work, but making sure that we have policies and laws that help um, bolster the rights um, of workers um, while also balancing the needs of employers and owners as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be? Welcome back. It's L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher. Thanks to all of you for making it to class this morning. I really appreciate it. For you rocking with us here in the Sunday Civics classroom and I found the conversation really interesting. And again, I thought it was really important to make this connection that there are similar struggles happening across the world. And if you're a student of history, that a number of different freedom struggles, you can point to similar actions happening in other places of the world. And quite often here in the U.S., we, from our news, from our media, everything is isolated as if things are only happening in the United States. It's all about us. The whole world revolves around us. And to take ourselves out of that frame of mind is 
was hard because we've been conditioned that way for a long period of time. But we can look to other countries of examples of how to fight back. We can look to other struggles of how we can maybe improve our systems here in the United States. One, whether it's healthcare, whether it's childcare, there are a number of different things that are still ass backwards here in the United States that other developing countries, other worlds, and I hate using developing, I hate using that frame, but other societies like ours, other countries like ours have long past solved these issues. And over the last couple of episodes, all the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about those things that shouldn't be hard, <laughs> that we all are in agreement on, or a majority of us are in agreement on, of how to address so that we can address them and then move on to the more hard things. But we find ourselves always fighting over those things that seem so no-brainer. It's a no-brainer that no one wants to see human suffering, that people, children, human beings, because, you know, we like to classify and say, oh, children shouldn't experience this, women shouldn't experience this, and classify and try to exhibit some sympathy based upon the categorization um, of people. But it's human beings across the board, human beings across the board. And as we see these conflicts escalating, I think it is important that we continue to raise our voices and demand better from our elected leaders. We can see that they are out of touch. They are out of step with what people want. And it's our job to continue to push them and also to continue to seek out new leaders and new people who will carry out the will of the masses. So that's our charge. And it's hard work because it doesn't happen overnight. It's hard work. So for those of you who are in class, who are in narrative, who are in those spaces where we are doing the business of nation building and trying to change what we've been told, what we've been conditioned to believe, it's hard work. Nation building is hard work. Change is hard work. But thank you for being in the spaces and being committed to do that hard work. That's all for me today. Remember, class is in session every Sunday right here on Sunday Civics. And I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And I'll be back next week with more conversations and more lessons for you to take action and stay civically engaged. Have a great one. It's cool.